Hey there, you are listening to Resource Families Thrive by Stanford Sierra Youth and Families. This is Daniel, I'm your Outreach Coordinator, and we are here to celebrate National Adoption Month this time around. Please do remember to like, comment, and share on our social media postings. Because we are celebrating National Adoption Month, we will be doing two episodes, so this go-around is going to be with some of our professionals, and then later on in the month, you will have the opportunity to hear some real-life stories from a couple of our uh, parents who have adopted out of our program. If you're a first-time listener, Stanford Sierra Youth and Families is an organization that has a long-standing reputation within the Sacramento region. We provide a variety of services that all support our agency mission, transforming lives by nurturing permanent connections and empowering families to solve challenges together so every child can thrive. At this time, we have office locations in Sacramento, Citrus Heights, Roseville, Grass Valley, Woodland, Placerville, and Napa. As we start National Adoption Month, I do want to give you a chance to hear from a couple of the professionals that we have within our organization. One of them is from Pathways to Permanency. The other is from one of our mental health programs. I'm going to have you two introduce yourselves to everybody, including to each other. I'm Sandy Certain. I'm with the Destination Family Program. And what's Destination Family? Destination Family is a program that works in collaboration with Sacramento County, and our goal is to find adoptive homes for the most challenging kids. The official terminology is one or more barriers to adoption, but that's essentially big sibling groups, teenagers, children with developmental or medical concerns, but 90% of our children are still demonstrating the effects of the traumas that brought them into the system in the first place, making it harder for them to move directly into an adoptive family. It's nice to meet you, Sandy. Uh, my name is Laura Monheim. Uh, I am the Associate Program Director for our FIT program at Stanford and Sierra Youth and Families. Um, the FIT program actually stands for Flexible Integrated Treatment. We also partner with Sacramento County and we provide mental health services to children um, who have Medi-Cal and the age range is very wide, ages zero all the way up to age 21. Um, the flexibility within the program is we provide over a huge variety of different types of therapy services, including skills work, uh, trauma-informed therapy, um, parenting skills, advocacy. We're a high intensity program for our children and their families. And we walk through various steps of the mental health system with them. That could include supporting them through a hospitalization, um, supporting them with linking them with Alta or working with their school to get them an IEP. Uh, so we really, really support and advocate for our families. We don't just do the therapy and the mental health support. Um, right now, because of uh, coronavirus and shelter in place, we have more barriers to providing our treatment, but typically we're out in the community every day, going to their schools, going to in their home, working with them side by side and supporting them with whatever might be going on. So I have you both on so that we can talk about National Adoption Month uh, being November as we've gotten ready for this podcast, uh, one phrase that's kind of come around to me a lot is seeking people who are adoption competent. What is adoption competency? What does that mean to you? I think for me, because I've gone through um, the adoption competency trainings that are available, I think within our program, it takes on a little bit of a different angle. I, what I found with adoption competence is really understanding that we are creating that people are creating a different type of family and that there could be challenges inherent to that. And so we want to be able to sort of identify from what we know historically tends to happen in these situations, as well as being flexible and available to understand what a specific family is dealing with. The one thing that I did notice in all of the trainings, because they all address an, an enormous part of what it's like once a child is adopted and becomes a member of another family and the, the different um, concerns that tend to come up then. 
but there's very little about how do we get these kids that are hesitant to ever, ever trust again, to be willing to trust and slowly to join the family. So that's just a very little bit different that we have, we experience with adoption competence. It really does um, sound similar to, um, I think our perspective in the FIT program, if we're thinking mental health specifically and providing mental health support to families who are either considering adoption or going through that adoption process, or maybe even considering, you know, disrupting an adoption or, you know, supporting a child in foster care who's been through multiple placements. I really think it does mean um, understanding the complexities behind that process. And it's going to look so different for every single child. You know, we have each person has their own identity, right? And that, that identity is created through our life experiences. And we have, when we have more adverse experiences that self-identity can sometimes be, be really negative, right? And so I think, I think adoption competency for, for me, it also comes with being trauma-informed, right? When we think about being trauma-informed, it means we're considering what's happened to the person, not what's wrong with them. And that's really, really important when we're thinking of adopting a child, right? It's not necessarily the things that are doing that are might be considered bad or they're getting in trouble. It's they're dealing with something very, very serious that, you know, or many things that are very, very serious and being mindful of that process in addition to being mindful of how the behaviors that someone is is, is going through or are experiencing um, are impacting the family that they're current, currently with, right? Um, and supporting on both sides. So supporting that child through what they're going through, as well as supporting that parent or that family to make that decision that's going to benefit them, but also support the kid the best that they can. And Sandy, that actually can kind of bring me into a specific question for you. So you said in Destination Family, you work with kids that have at least one barrier to permanency and it does tie into being trauma-informed. What do those barriers typically look like? What do you mean when you say barriers to permanency? So just to get the initial referral from the county, these kids have had, they usually have already kind of done um, in mainstream adoptions when kids are referred for adoption, they have 150 days to find a family. And so to do that, they just have available families and they kind of go, she wants an eight-year-old, here's an eight-year-old, and they kind of match like that. The difference between what Destination Family does is we really try to establish a relationship with our child. From the very beginning, it's all about a relationship and trying to kind of mend those um, the breaks in attachment that have happened over time by at least showing them that this is someone that's just going to be there with you. And it's not, it's just spending day in and day out and getting to know the child in a really organic way. Um, when I first started, they gave it, they had all these questionnaires, like, and I went in it and they were saying, your job is to find this baby a home, you know, and I get a little eight year old that says, I don't want no home. You know, I have no desire to find a home. I'm perfectly fine. I have a mom and dad. I don't want to do anything like that. But it's in over time and establishing that relationship that we're able to really start to hear what their concerns are and what their fears are in a very, you know, in a very organic conversational tone, rather than like trying to just fill out a wish list of what you want. And the other benefit for us is there's no time limit. So we can take as long as it takes for this child to feel safe enough to take a shot at another family. Another part that is inherent to a destination family is we do um, a life domain assessment on every single child. And we have the opportunity to go to, and we know every document that CPS has, we also have access to those files. So we can go to the office and we can get archive files and go through all of those all the way back to when this child came into the system. And then we also have access to their CMS, CWS, um, database system that CPS uses. So we can go back through and we do all this reading because there's so much information, especially in the older handwritten chronos where someone wrote Grandma Rose's phone number on the side of a progress note and it never got placed into anything else that we had access to it. So when we're going through the records, we're able to get all of the child's history. We're able to identify more um, family members or perhaps support people, but we could also see we've come across um, 
children with significant medical conditions that somehow they fail to continue to follow up on because this child might move too many times and they lose track of it. I had We had a little guy um, with autism who had hepatitis and he had been in like 14 different homes and then seven different group homes and nobody was even following it, but we were giving him an awful lot of psychotropic medication without ever doing a check on that. So they had to go back and really do a lot of stuff. So in going through all those files, we we can identify a lot like what Laura was saying for, do this child maybe need an IEP? Would it be reasonable to refer them to the regional center? Um, we look at family connections and who's important to them. We look at cultural connections, um, medical, mental health, all of those pieces so that when we do start looking for a family, we know what this child needs. We want to know our child in such a, a intimate way that it's like our own birth child or our own child in our family, because that's how important it is. When we sit down and interview another family, it's important to give them full disclosure about everything we know about the child. But we also want to talk to them in um, beyond what's just on their home study, you know, and really try and make sure that this is a family that's going to be able to go the distance with our little one. And then destination family stays on with the child and the family all the way through to adoption, which could take up 18 months to two years. So we stay along to be a support at any time along the way. And um, even once the case is transferred to adoption, there will be a new adoption worker, but our worker stays on for the duration. So sometimes my kids will have a big CFT and uh, everybody at the table and they're saying, who is this person? Who is that person? And they go, that's my therapist. That's my casa. And that's Sandy. They're not really sure what I do because I've just been there so long. But they just know they know that I'm going to be there through every move that they have and all the way through to the end. Well, and that's great because one thing that has come up in several episodes now, honestly, possibly the past three or four episodes is this concept of one stable person. And so even as they're going through this adoption process, it sounds like a destination family worker can be that one stable person. We try to bridge that relationship to the next parent or the next family. Yeah. Sandy, I want to go back. You, you sparked some, you know, a thought in my mind when you had mentioned how important it is for, you know, this, this eight year old boy, let's say who, you're like, we're going to find you a family. And he's like, I'm fine. I don't want that. Right. I have a mom. I have a dad. I have, you know, siblings, right. They might not be here with me right now, but I know that they're there. And, um, and I really, really appreciate hearing that, you know, you're getting to know that child in that way and really disclosing that information to the family when they're considering taking this child in, because I really do believe like, and also kind of tying it back to what you just said at the beginning or at the end there around, um, you know, having one stable person, the more that we can educate and and kind of set some expectations around what this placement might look like, right? The potential longevity, more longevity we will have. And that really is when we're talking about being trauma-informed, you know, being able to have over time a family that can show up for a child, right? Um, and And that the longer that time progresses, the more that child can feel safe with that family right? The more they can build trust and they can build a relationship that will potentially be long lasting. Doesn't have to be a new mom. Doesn't have to be a new dad. You know, family dynamics look different. Um, But I really, really think that's, that's a huge piece. And I think in our, in our program in FIT, we support um, foster families, resource families, or adoptive families in kind of navigate some of those, navigating some of those expectations around what this family dynamic should now look like, right? There's this, hey, I brought this child and they should appreciate that. Like I'm giving them this life, right? They should appreciate that. And we yeah, know all that. The time. Yep. And we know that it just doesn't play out that way because these kids come, come from, you know, they have other experiences, they have other families and, and absolutely they should appreciate that you're giving them safety and stability. We know that, but we also know that because of their past experiences, it's much harder for them to do so. And it just takes more time and more patience and, and a lot of dedication. And so, um, yeah. 
We do a lot of work with the children too. I think one of the, the two major things that we focus on are adoption preparation for the child and for the family. And that starts way, way, way farther back for our kids, especially our ones that are like, heck no, I won't go. And is just to start working on no one's going to just yank you up and put you in a family. But that has happened to children. The court decides that this is your new plan. And the workers just say, bam, you're getting adopted. And that's such a almost like a mail order bride. You're just meeting the person. And now this is your entire life. And we work with our kids, even the ones that are overly anxious, like find me a family, find me a family, to let them know that they are too important just to meet somebody and move in forever, that we all have a right to get to know people. Some of my kids are like, like, what if they're vegetarians? You know, what if they only <laughs> want to eat broccoli all the time? We need yeah. to ask these questions. What time is bedtime? Some of them, they seem kind of trivial. But I just really, really want to just model for the child that this is not a done deal. Even when we are introducing a child to a new family, we don't go in saying this is your new adopted family. And sometimes when we talk to families about that, that are so, so super excited and they have their books and they're just ready to tell the child, this is going to be your new name and welcome to our family on the first moment they meet them. That's scary. You know, or it's building this amazing uh, fantasy for the child that can never be fulfilled. So we just say, because we built that relationship, and they all know from the very beginning that my belief is that the best place for kids to grow up is within a family. And again, like you said, Laura, whatever that looks like from a legal perspective is kind of irrelevant. What the important thing is to be able to allow yourself to love and be loved again. And have that opportunity. So we, you know, get the families to say, all we're telling him is we met these people, we talked to them, I think you might like them, just give it a shot. And that's a lot less intimidating than meet your new mom, which does happen a lot to our kids. And I've seen um, our kids coming in with their own life books and telling these virtual strangers all of their most personal business, you know, and they don't know at that point if they will ever see these people again. So it really is being um, kind of taking a deep breath and going into it a lot slower with our children and our families and allowing them to build a relationship first. There's no arbitrary timelines. A lot of times um, there used to be kind of the standard of so many so many short visits, then a day visit, then an overnight, then a placement. And ours, we can take as long as it takes for the child to feel comfortable. Um, I had a six-year-old child that, uh, sorry, a kid that was in the sixth grade, and he met the family around Christmas time, but he wanted to graduate with his class. And they lived in Newark, but they drove up every weekend for him through the entire school year. And on the day he graduated was the day he moved in. And that meant so much to him and also to the family. And because we had the flexibility to do that, I think it really contributed to a much stronger match for that child. I think it's, I think this is kind of what we're speaking about really is a a natural lead into talking about attachment theory and, and how important feeling securely attached um, really is to a child's development and their sense of self-esteem and sense of self-worth. And, you know, attachment theory is, um, is really all about the idea that um, a person's impressions of relationships start with their very first caregiver, um, whoever that might be. For the most part, it is usually their biological mother, right? The person that gives birth to them. Um, and depending on that relationship and if, if that person is able to care for them, because of, of course adults have their own things going on too, their own trauma history and all kinds of stuff, um, you know, that really shapes uh, their perspective of the world and how they perceive people and if people will be there for them or not. And so when, when that first attachment is disrupted, it can have a very serious impact for their ability to trust others, specifically adults, but that can shape, that can turn into, you know, romantic relationships or peer relationships down the road when they're older. But it really starts with 
can I trust this person that's supposed to be there for me, right? Um, and do I have a relationship with them that I feel secure enough that I can, you know, go out, um, learn about the world, come back, they'll still be there for me, you know, and it starts to shape, uh, like I said, just how they really perceive and interact with others in their world. And there definitely is an ability to create attachment in a new home as well. It does take time, you know, and patience again. And and I truly believe, and just from personal experience, um, working in fit as a clinician myself before I be, became a supervisor, I've seen it with my own eyes, um, especially with younger children, you know, who are placed into new um, new homes, whether it's a resource parent or some or an adoptive parent. I really believe that um, that parent showing up over time and being there for them can be the biggest healing um, factor for them. And when I say over time, I mean at least a full calendar year, right? Get through the get through the seasons and get through the new school year and the holidays, whatever that looks like for the family they're with, and all of these different things. And then, in order for that attachment to begin to build, you know, that parent continues to show up. I'm really glad you brought up that timeline aspect too, because when I was a support counselor, there were a couple families who would call me up and say, I've had this kid for three months. Why are they acting up so much? Why aren't they being grateful? And the response that I would have to have would basically, I would tell them, you've had them for three months. They've had themselves for 12 years they're not going to get past what they experienced in those first 12 years in three months, no matter what. And, you know, we've got holiday season coming up. I jokingly tell people that Halloween is the gateway holiday (laughs) in that it, it leads to what it leads to these holidays that are all family focused, family oriented. And so they have to figure out what that looks like for them and informing their new family culture, especially if they're on the adoption track. I adopted my daughter like 20 years ago, and she came into care on Halloween. And for the rest of her life, it was this pumpkins, turkeys, Christmas trees. It just, you know, she didn't know what the date was at the time, but she knew. And it was the hardest time for her because when it's about the families and expectations and you know people you get together and things happen more around all of that because more people are around one of the things we really stress with with um, our families and what we get from establishing that early relationship is that we try to gather an understanding of that child's attachment style and be able to talk when we're doing a disclosure or talking to a potential parent helping them understand that because there's some people that need to get their cups filled. You know, they need to have the child give them back something. And we can tell from the beginning, there are kids that they love you like crazy, but it's not going to look like you expect it to look, you know? So it's to be able to to try from the beginning to match with the family that's going to be more understanding with that child's attachment style, because it is it's sort of the attachment style based on their life experience that gives everything meaning to them. And that's what it's going to be like moving forward. So, and then once they're in the placement, it really is working on more things to create family. You know, rather a lot of people want to go in and like, let's start doing trauma work right now. Until what we find is until they get um, their roots down and feel really safe, they're not ready. They're not in a place to start bringing that up. And it could actually make it, more challenging for everybody in the very beginning. And there's going to be time for that. I 100% agree. I've seen it time and time again myself. And I like, I really like that you said feeling safe. I think that's a really key factor with attachment, but also with being trauma informed and adoptions competent is this child may be out of danger. They might not be, they might be safe, physically be safe, right? they likely do not feel safe yet. And those are two very different things. Um, And in order, I mean, that is exactly what we do and fit as well um, in order to be able to really start doing that trauma work, the clinician and the team really, and, you know, with partnering with a family needs to look at, do we believe this child is in a place where they feel safe enough to do the trauma work? 
are they ready to go there yet? You know, maybe we can just work with behaviors now or, you know, collaborating with the parents, providing psychoeducation, things like that. Um, and, and, and I had a, I had a five-year-old myself, a little one who um, they had gone, you know, we had done the, you know, let's, let's get through some holiday seasons and some things like that and, 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 and be there for this little one. And she started to do really well. And then, you know, mom says, and they had gone there, adoption had been finalized, you know, things were going really awesome. She was going to start first grade and mom says, okay, let's do her trauma work now. And, you know, I just, and I had, I, I really was, um, I didn't quite believe that she was ready to go there yet. And mom was, and the client wasn't really ready, but the client was starting to talk to her mom and ask her specific questions you know, about why are, you know, why are we here and different things like that. And, and so in partnering with that family, mom was like, you know what, I think we're good right now. I think we're okay. And they were able to graduate from services with the understanding that, you know, if we start seeing some more of these things come out, of course, you can always come back to treatment. You know, we can always do the trauma work down the road. The other thing about that is um, different developmental stages make a huge impact too right? You might have a little one. And then when they start becoming a little bit older, you know, depending on puberty or, or things like that, it opens up completely new doors and, you know, new triggers can become apparent and things like that. So timing is really, really crucial when we're talking about supporting with trauma, but attachment definitely is a a big piece from the very beginning. We try to really help our families do things that are going to promote that attachment and attunement. And this is kind of a separate, uh, aside from Destination Family, but we're using it in Destination Family. Last year, I was able to complete the um, Dr. Bruce Perry's neurosequential model of therapeutics that really looks at where the child is developmentally from that early onset of trauma. And it has a kind of a heuristic brain model that just shows from the brainstem up, but that you get all of these, that early neglect and you know, lack of support and frightened and scared and all of that, that impacts the child's ability to just develop the regular kind of sensory and somatosensory things that you need to know or to have in place in order to start getting, being able to function at that higher cortical level where you can be a participant in insight-based therapy. So I really like it after you do the assessment, the only thing the family has to do are things that are fun. It's just the rhythmic, repetitive, rewarding activity. So jumping on trampolines and deep hugs and massages and bubble baths and sensory stuff and all of that stuff, if you if they can do it consistently throughout the day, they're going to see improvement in a child. A lot of our really dysregulated little ones, this kind of helps pull them back in together so they can stay a little more focused and be able to hear what you have to say and be a more active participant in their clinical sessions with the therapist. But it's also something that empowers a parent. I always, I go back with my daughter and we just took her to therapy after therapy after therapy. And it really felt like she learned how to play a really good game of Uno and that you get candy at the end. I didn't, I couldn't see any improvement or any growth. But I think with this, parents can actually do something that's going to be helpful. And it's also going to help increase the bond and create rituals and routines in the family. We definitely, I've had, I have to give a little shout out to one of our clinical supervisors who supports um, a lot of our clinicians in our program. Her name is Edie Swidler, and she is an attachment focused clinician herself, and she provides attachment uh, supervision to our staff. And we, we get to do a lot of these fun interventions with our, our kiddos and our parents, if it's clinically appropriate, if they are working on attachment, we absolutely, you know, things like a feather, you know, um, just back and forth, right? Or even mirroring each other on body movements or facial expressions, you know, very, very simple things, putting lotion on each other's hands, things like that. And that is, uh, that is um, some of the really awesome uh, attachment interventions that I know that some of our clinicians are doing these days. So why is it important for families to know this? As they're getting into the foster to adopt process, 
you know, we're talking about attachment, we're talking about adoption competency, being trauma informed, and that's a lot. But why should it matter to them if if their dream is to build a family off of this to help kids? Why is all of this important? Doesn't a child just need love? I think that the big reason that I tell families is because as much as you're going to love this child, you still want them to have their best quality of life. And if we can do this work, and if you as a parent can be knowledgeable enough to identify when that work needs doing, then you're going to be better able to ensure that your child gets everything that they need to be their most successful self in life. I'm just thinking about expectations and I, and I talk about expectations. I know I've already said that word before, but I just, I just think that parents should just throw all of their expectations out the door as far as what, what's going to present itself in the course of this child's life. Right. And because it's going to be something different for every single child, it's going to look different. It's going to feel different. Um, And so I really believe in as far as being trauma informed, like you may get a five year old and you might think my niece is five and she can she knows her ABCs or something like that. Right. You may get a five year old and maybe they're they're not even potty trained yet. Right. Things like that. And and that comes from their life experience and the situations that they're coming from. Right. We have a, you might get a 15 year old kid who should know how to get himself dressed and he should know how to make himself a sandwich you know, make yourself your lunch, you know, and kids sometimes be depending on, we, we can know about appropriate and kind of within normal limits about development, but our kiddos that have gone through so many different placements and so much different, so much trauma and things like that are going, are not going to have some of those um, developmental education, educational skills that they should already have. And so I think that's just really, really important. And, um, they are probably likely going to see behaviors. Not every child, not every, I, I guarantee that you could probably share a story about a kiddo that was very well adjusted and met a family and there was like a, a wonderful happy ending right at the beginning, you know? Um, but, you know, I will, I will say that it is very likely that there are going to be challenging times and they're going to see behaviors that are going to be hurtful, whether that's you know, destructive things in the home or um, just not getting along with people, calling people names, saying, I hate you, saying, I don't want to live with you. I don't want to be your parent. Sometimes those things happen. And it's kids really testing. Are the, is this person going to be around and how long are they going to be around for? You know, I've so I think do that to their biological parents. Right. Yeah. Oh, of course. But how much harder mm-hmm. on a, you know, on a different, on a different level is it when it's, when it's not your bio- biological child to hear something like that, you know? I imagine that parents um, are questioning, am I the right person for this kid, right? And so, yes, you are. You absolutely are the right person if you're willing to, to show some unconditional love and, and, uh, and stay educated around what their needs are because those needs will continuously change. I think it's that really coaching for them to, in developing that ability not to take it personally because <laughs> that's the worst when yes. that kid says, I'm out of here. I don't even want to be with you guys. You're not my mother. Then they'll say, fine, if you don't want to be here. And it just, it's, it's an angry response to a hurt response. But once they hear that, you can't unring that bell. You know, I tell, I just have my parents almost practice when you're 21, you can leave, you know, or you're here, you're mine. I love you. And just, just continue to be sending and saving that message. And I know that we hear those things, you know, the you're not my real mom, all that stuff. And in my experience as a support counselor, I've seen the most pushback from kids on the adoption track from from the older ones. That's just my professional experience. So why, I guess, realistically, my my big question, because there are so many older, quote unquote, kids talking about six and up, realistically, in need of permanency why is adoption so important for them? And actually, if we could focus that in even more on teenagers, if they're older, they've developed their own personality, their sense of independence, they're, they're coming into themselves. Why is it still important for them to have families? I think a lot of our kids, they, they want that. 
even the ones that say, I don't need that, or they hear about AB12 and they think they're going to be rolling large with that, whatever <laughs> amount of money they're going to have. And, and, and I don't need anybody. But they uh, underneath that is a lot of times nobody's going to take a kid my age. Nobody's going to want me. So why should I um, put myself out there and hope that it's going to happen? That's one reason why we've sort of steered away from having kids be active in developing their own um, kind of recruitment tools and child available. We used to do that and let them make it up themselves. And so I realized it's kind of like a dating profile that nobody ever picks you. You know, it's really sad when, you know, a kid's all, this is my best dress, this is a picture, I look good, these are my favorite bands, this is what I like. You, you can find me a family, and then months and months and months and months go by and we don't. And a lot of that is not a choice whether or not people aren't out there. It just seems to be you get people that are all certified early and they want their idea in their head is maybe for an infant or a smaller child. And it kind of takes, uh, there's very few that come in looking for that older age, but we are getting that a lot more. People that would prefer school age children. That, and I mean, it's extremely important for teenagers to have a loving home and a loving family. Um, and that's just heartbreaking to me to hear that example, the reference to like the dating profile. I just think that's really sad. Um, and I think it's really not about what these teenagers want. They might think they're ready for the world. It's really about what they need. Teenagers are still developing. They are not able to make the most um, logical and thoughtful decisions for their long-term ben benefit, for their long-term well-being. They still need support. They still need, I mean, we all do, right? People do. Um, also, just because they're turning 18, that does not mean that they are going to be ready to be an adult and function on their own either. Um, really, we're looking at age 25 as, as really being the age where people can start actually making decisions, you know, long-term as far as professionally and, and what they want to do for themselves and being actually self-sufficient. And I think if there's a relationship with a established with a teenager that's trusting and that, that attachment is built, that relationship can and will continue into their young adulthood and beyond. That's still a family member. It may not be a child that's in your home, but it's still somebody that, you know, can be a part of your life and you can be a part of their life um, very long term. I was just going to say that we've had a few finalizations that were like right before one girl was like a week before her 18th birthday. And all of those kids were able to just meet the person and we didn't put any pressure on anything like. I had one girl that was like, no, 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 I'm 13. Nobody wants a kid my age. And I'm like, come on, they're in the Bay Area. What's the worst thing that can happen? But just for her to, to understand that this doesn't have to mean anything. If you like them, go back and see them. If you don't, then you don't have to. The worst that can happen is that you might make a friend. The best could be that this might be your choice of where you want to live. And it actually ended up being the right family for her. Um, she She's a transgender youth now. I'm sorry, he is a transgender youth now. And um, he, at the time, was actually feeling guilty in his um, foster home. And people were not accepting of just her gender variance at all, of just what was presenting at that time. And they somebody actually tried to do a, an exorcism on her oh, <laughs> at her church. Yeah, so she moved in with a family that was incredibly open and supportive, and she was able to sort of do her own exploration and find out where where she wanted to be. So um, it it just makes a big difference. She's attending uh, Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara, and doing amazing right now. But when we started, he was not going to have anything to do with any of this. I think people forget that family has no age limit. Like I, I had a client who was 20 when he got adopted after 15 years in foster care, he was 20. And actually he's uh, talked about in one of the previous episodes that I did too, with uh, where one of the guests was one of our longstanding resource families. And um, so there's, there's no such thing as too late to be adopted. 
I will say uh, that it's definitely harder for a teenager to want to be vulnerable to a new family after they have felt rejected time and time again. And so um, it's, it's definitely um, going to be challenging if you're, especially if you're talking about like building attachment, right. It's going to probably take a little bit more time or it might just look different. Um, but that unconditional love and, and showing up for them can still be there, you know, providing a, a safe, a safe nurturing environment can still happen and they still need it. I 110% agree with you. Sandy, I'm going to target you here for a second. How many adoptions have you been a part of for like finalizations? I think last count was way before COVID and I was just really excited to go over a hundred. I was in, I wanted a party like with the confetti from the ceiling and the champagne, but I got a really nice cupcake in the office. So that was awesome. But so I think now it's about 105. And it's just in which I think the biggest and most important thing was over time from when I was hired in 2008 was when we first had started the Wendy's grant two years before there had been no finalization. So it was sort of taking the Wendy's wonderful kid model. That's uh, one of the only um, evidence-based practices to show permanency um, being attained for older youth specifically and children of color and use that model to make it fit for our demographics specifically. And it was sort of changing a lot of those ways that were just how we did it. When I started to be a lot more um, child-centered in a way that we're respecting them as little human beings with thoughts and, and feelings rather than just little people that it's my job to make them put them somewhere else. You know, it's my job to fulfill what the court says. There's so much more than what we tell kids. We have these buttons that say it is what it is till it ain't because that's what I tell our kids and our families and everybody that wants to give these kids this predictive thing about what's going to happen. Just because the the judge changed it just changes the plan from reunification to adoption doesn't mean we can get it done. You know, and once we tell the child you're gonna get adopted, all of a sudden now they're scared that everything they know is gonna get uprooted and changed at some point because there's some imminent change in my future and I don't know what that means. So, you know, we go in with that assumption that we want to have you prepared to have as many people in your life that love you as humanly possible. And in doing that work, we're going to help get to a point where a child is open to adoption. And Laura, what's amazing about your program and the work that you've done? I unfortunately don't have like the numbers in front of me, so I can't speak to that, although I wish I could. Um, but we do serve... Uh, over 300 kids in each of our FIT programs at any given time. And that takes a lot of collaboration and work with our program, with Sac County, things like that. Um, I, I was sharing a little bit, I was sharing a little bit about the one client that I, you know, we were able to successfully, um, uh, successfully graduate from treatment and, and adoption was finalized and, you know, got to work with that caregiver and that child. Um, there's so many, so many success stories. It's just, it's hard to even pick one. It's, it's an interesting fine line. I will say this, it is technically out of our scope in our program to make a recommendation for a placement, which is almost counterintuitive to our value system of, you know, minimizing disruptions in placement, keeping children with families, right? But we are able to do our work based on those values. And so we're able to support all of the the partners involved in a child's success, right? It takes a village. We, we definitely live by that motto. It takes a village to raise a child. And so, you know, we are extremely, extremely invested in um, children's well-being and ability to thrive, not just survive. And um, I wish I had some more specific examples, but it's definitely the work that we do every single day. We've got some awesome people in the program. I've had the privilege of getting some crossover with FIT when I was, again, when I was still doing direct care work, and it was always an amazing experience. The therapists were always so 
wonderful at building relationships with the kids that they were working with. They were absolutely amazing at building those bonds with families at really understanding everything from a holistic perspective. So it is a great point of pride for me when I'm talking about our organization with people that don't know about us to be able to kind of gush about our mental health programs like FIT. Y'all are fantastic. Yeah, we definitely um, value children as, as the whole person. You know, it's so important to really, to really partner and work with them on what's important to them. What are things that they're already good at or that they're passionate about? And how can we incorporate that into their progress, right? So instead of just looking at them as why they're there in treatment, what the problem is, it's who are they? You know, who do they want to be? What do they desire to do in their future? You know, how can we support them to get them to where they would like to be and, and to be able to stay in their family and to have that environment and for everybody to have fun again. That's sometimes just a goal, right? Of a family. It's not about meeting your treatment. It is about meeting your treatment goal, you know, managing depression or anxiety or helping self-regulate, but in the family's words, right? We use a lot of family, you know, we want to make sure it's the family's language. So sometimes it's, we just want to be able to have fun again. We just want to be able to, you know, go out in the community and stay safe, right? And the more smiles and positive interactions, the better. And so it's it's definitely more than just individual mental health services. It's the family as a whole and the child as a whole person and helping them thrive. We have just finished a three-year comparative study between the county's adoption programs and our adoption programs, and we have it in the draft form. But it shows like across the board that we did better in achieving permanency, maintaining permanency and placement, keeping kids in in a home even before finding adoptions. We limited the number of moves. We found more homes for children of color and less what do they have? Um, and less disruptions overall. So it was really exciting. It puts us that much closer to becoming an evidence-based program by having a full um, comparative study like this done over the three years. And for me, it makes me just extra proud because we were able to prove that this is a replicable program. It wasn't just the way I figured out how to do it. We could teach everybody on the team how to do it, and they're all getting the same levels of success with their kids and their placements. If I had a sound effect machine, I would totally do a clapping sound right now, just so you know. (laughs) I don't know how much our audience is really interested in research, but we are definitely outcome driven as well. In the FIT program, we have lots of assessment tools that we utilize that show success with increasing school behavior and you know school achievement, increasing family relationships, reducing safety risks, reducing hospitalizations, reducing police contact. You know, all of those types of things are outcomes that we are focused on and we are definitely uh, succeeding in and reaching. I think that's stuff that's been brought up in almost every episode in some form or another. We talk about the needs of these kids. Our organization, you know, we, we specialize in working with intensive service foster care youth in our program. Not that every child is going to be intensive service, but given that we have an understanding that all of our kids have experienced trauma, there is a possibility that they're going to need some deeper trauma work. And so knowing that we share buildings metaphorically now since we're kind of split into multiple different sites but knowing that we have that quick accessibility to a mental health program that is evidence-based that is so competent in so many different therapeutic models is a great thing we are a one-stop shop for all sorts of services and and that's phenomenal to know that we've got a program like Sandy's, Laura, we've got a program like yours in the same agency, that level of layers of support. I do want to ask one last question. So this one might be kind of hard to like distill it down, but if you had to give one piece of advice to a family who is going through the foster to adopt process or thinking about it, what would that piece of advice be? I know, I know. <laughs> For I really, I was also just thinking about this too. And I really want to put it out there that if you are in the process, if you're in search, if you're looking for that child for your family, definitely consider kids that are in the destination family program. 
because you're going to get much more support over the long term. And, and it's not time limited. Sometimes if you get a child like from Los Angeles County or somewhere far away, you have this minimal contact with the county worker up front, but then you're kind of on your own with the child. It's very helpful when you do get fit services because then they can be a support to you. But our kids are coming from a, a more understanding and a better back, a better understanding of their background as well as who they are and just that relationship piece that will help to bridge that into your home. I would say, um, and I'm glad you asked this question, Daniel, because I, it didn't come up naturally in our conversation, but I would say to remember that people are resilient. Resilience is huge, right? Um, everybody has the ability to overcome what they've been through um, and to even not to only overcome it, but to find meaning, grow from it, learn from it, um, take what take what they've been through and kind of become a bigger and better version of themselves, right? And um, children are the most resilient because they're still learning and growing. And so I would say that, you know, in, in order to support kids in being as resilient as possible, you know, we need to support them in understanding their sense of self. We need to understand, we need to support them in helping them to believe in themselves, that they are capable of learning, they are capable of being successful, and they are also capable of being loved and loving others. And so if we can stick with them, they will be able to do that. And that's where that one person comes in. I think it's come up in most of our episodes now is that we talk about it, it takes one person to tell them that I love you the way you are. I love you for who you are and not what's happens to you. That's, that's all it takes. And people can be that one, whether they realize it or not. That's why we want them to give us a call. It's why we want them to visit our website, to comment with their questions on the podcast posts, all of those things. We, we want people to know that they can be the one. I, really sincerely appreciate the two of you. I, as I said before, I'm always eager to get new guests on because I always learn something new. I'm really pleased to have gotten to learn more about fit, to have gotten to learn more about destination family. Sandy, you and I have like sat across from each other when we're in the office. And I feel like I've learned a lot more in this hour than in that time. Cause I think we're also both so busy all the time. It's good to get a chance to sit down. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. As we close out, I do ask again that you like, comment, and share on our social media posts. The reason that I wanted to make sure we had a couple of guests from within our program to get us started is so that you can understand some of the experiences that you might have as you go through the foster to adopt process. You are making a decision to come to Stanford Sierra Youth and Families. You are making a decision that's going to impact not only your life, your family's lives, but the life of a child. And we want you to know the information that we can provide, the education that you can gain, and the ways that we can and will support. Education provides us with our first opportunity to respond to a child's needs. What I appreciate about all of our programs within our organization is that no matter where we are, no matter what service we provide, we share a common language and we share a common goal. And we support one another so that we can support you. Please remember to tune in in a couple of weeks so that you can hear from two families who have gone through the adoption process from our program. And I'll let Laura close us out. Until we talk to you again, keep on thriving.